uh, from 21 servants of sovereign joy, faithful, flawed, and fruitful uh, by John Piper. What we're going to be dealing with today is actually what is is book three. There's seven books in this thing, in this big. That's the book, and uh, there's seven books inside here. And this is this is uh, coming from book three. And uh, and there are three in there. Three uh, people he covers in that particular section. That's John Newton, Charles Simeon, and Wil- Wilbur uh, William Wilberforce. I'll probably do that a hundred times today. Um, so today we're going to go over uh, Wilberforce. Uh, before I get started, I'll say that almost all of the things I bring up today were brought up in Piper's book. I did look into some other things, as everybody would uh, on online uh, BBC. BBC. You see, he actually had a, a good good section on him. Um, Christianity Today had a good good section on, on Wilberforce. And of course, as all scholars will do, Wikipedia. Um, so uh, that, that's kind of where I got all this stuff. Um, I think most of you probably are at least somewhat familiar with Wilberforce. As Art just mentioned a minute ago, that a lot of theologians, if you read, they, they mention him uh, along the way. So even I had heard of Wilberforce, and that tells you that it, uh, it's pretty widespread. Okay, before we get going, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this day that you've given us. I pray that you'll uh, guide us in our thinking today. May we learn um, what you have for us uh, uh, through this uh, great man of the faith. Uh, we ask that you guard our conversation in Christ's name. Amen. We've got a pretty simple outline today that we'll just look at, first of all, to just give you a life overview of Wilberforce, particularly look at his conversion then and his calling, uh, discuss his guiding theology, and then go through, probably spend a good deal of our time, uh, lessons that we can learn from from Wilberforce. And then uh, Piper had a pretty pretty good, I thought, closing summary, and we'll go through that. So looking at his life overview, he was born in, uh, uh, on Oct- August the 24th, 1759 in Hull, uh, which is East Yorkshire, England. And that's north of London. Yorkshire is north of, north of London. Uh, he died on July 29th, 1833. He was almost 74 years old when he passed away. So if you look at that timeline of his life from 1759 to 1833, what are some things that went on during that time? Every American should know one. What? Well, slavery, yeah, we'll talk about that a bunch. What was going on in the United... Uh, what, what was going on in the Americas at that time? Yay! Art remembers it like it was yesterday. <laughs> well, almost was. And Bobby could probably tell us, I think the English and the French fought for like 100 years or something like that, and... Uh, and this was still going on when Wilberforce was, was alive. I thought, found it interesting. There wasn't any, in, in anything I read, there was almost no reference to the American Revolution when they're discussing Wilberforce. I thought that was weird. Some people that were in his same timeline, uh, John Wesley, uh, Charles, of course, and then uh, John Newton. 
when he was eight years old, his father died. And, and his mother then became ill, and so she sent uh, him to live with his aunt and uncle, who was Hannah and William, and they lived in London. Uh, the Wilberforce family itself was a very successful merchant family. Uh, they, they were very well-to-do. Um, they, they, they dealt in imported goods, and so that was from really all over the world. Um, and it did involve some sugar uh, imports from the West Indies. Uh, the family reflected that great wealth and the architecture of their home and everything he was, he was really well-to-do. So they, uh, Hannah and William sent him to a boarding school, uh, which he didn't really like very much, uh, but he did, he did go there. But then something happened. Um, he, they also were evangelical Methodist. And so they took him to church every week, and so he's hearing good Bible stories and hearing really great preachers, uh, people he, he came to really like, and I don't know if they were tied in with this Methodist thing, was George Whitfield, John Wesley, and John Newton. But his mother was a high church, and she didn't like this Methodist business, so she took him back, took him out of London, took him back, and uh, put him in another boarding school, which he did well in his languages and, and even participated in some sports. But uh, Wilberforce was a small and, and sickly child, and he had poor eyesight from the very beginning. And, and in fact, as we'll see later, his poor health plagued him most of his life. But he was a, a, a talented singer. Uh, he even participated in some sports. Uh, he had a reputation for telling, telling funny stories, and he was always uh, doing practical jokes. So this guy was quite a character. At age 17, he went to Cambridge, uh, where he met William Pitt, who you might have heard of. Became, he eventually became prime minister, um, and they were lifelong friends from that point on. Unfortunately, uh, Wilberforce took advantage of his uh, high standing and, and his time at the university. He was a, a real socialite. Uh, he, he was known to attend dinners and, and gambling and playing cards and uh, frequenting clubs, and it would be said that he may have taken a little adult beverage too much. Um, he, he enjoyed every part of being part of high society, he lived a big life, and remember the Enlightenment was going on during this time, and he, he, was, he was living things to the fullest. Uh, despite the social life, he, he managed to graduate from Cambridge in 1781, and he w was determined to have a career in Parliament. Uh, he left all the influence that he had, uh, his evangelical influence, he left all that behind. Um, he, he lost all interest in any biblical religion, and he just circulated among, amongst the social elites. Uh, he ran for the House of Commons, and turned out, look at these years, he ran, while he was still at Cambridge, he was, uh, he was uh, in 1780, at age 21, he ran for the House of Commons, and he won. He didn't, I don't think he, the way this was kind of phrased, he thought he would win. He did win. Four years later, he moved to a different area uh, of Yorkshire, which is a more prominent seat. He won that as well. He never lost an election from age 21 till he was 74. Uh, he began his uh, political career as an upper-class, late-night, partying unbeliever. Uh, he lived happily single until he was 37 years old, and he met uh, a lady named Barbara Spooner, in 1797, 
uh, within eight days, he proposed to her. Did you hear that? Eight days he proposed to her, and six weeks later they were married. In the first eight years they had, I can't believe this, that's not true. Yeah, first eight years they had four sons and two daughters. Uh, He became a a devoted husband, father, a real real family man, which wasn't all that common amongst the elites that he he was really involved in his his family. he had an incredible gift of speaking. Uh, William Pitt uh, said, Wilberforce possessed the greatest natural eloquence of all the men I ever knew. And coming from, from England, that's, uh, I listen to those people in England speak, and they all speak that way. This guy must have been something else. He retired from politics uh, in, when he was 66 years old in 1825 uh, due to ill health. As a mark of his achievements uh, in his life, he's buried in Westminster Abbey. So what happened? Uh, he was, he's not on the right path, you know, where, where we left him there. Um, a great change came about. In 1784, uh, Wilberforce invited a former schoolmaster at, at, at Queens College named Isaac Milner uh, to travel with him to the French Riviera. This is a good place to get converted. Um, it turns out that Milner was a convinced Christian without stereotypes that, that uh, Wilberforce had often, often associated with uh, Christianity. Milner pointed him to Philip Doddridge's book, uh, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul, which was written in 1745. He ascribes this book to be a huge influence in his conversion. By February of 1785, when he's roughly 26, he had reached intellectual assent to the biblical view of man, God, and Christ. But he had not yet converted. Conversations continued with Milner. Uh, His intellectual assent was eventually transformed into profound conviction. So again, we're talking about 1785, roughly. One of the first changes that came about with him was the contempt he felt for his wealth and the luxury he lived, especially when he went on trips, like to the Riviera. Um, Quoting Piper, seeds were sown almost immediately at the beginning of his Christian life, it seems. Of the later passion to help the poor and to turn all his inherited wealth and his naturally high station into a means of blessing the oppressed. In a time of uh, of anguish and uh, 10,000 doubts about his role in life, uh, Wilberforce sought the counsel of John Newton. Such a meeting at that time had to be done in secret. We may be coming upon times like this here. Such a meeting had to be done in secret because evangelicals were not admired or esteemed by colleagues in Parliament. Um, The meeting with Newton took place when Newton was 60 years old. What's Newton famous for? A lot of things, but amazing grace. Um, uh, It took place December 7, 1785. It was historically significant. Um, You'll see why as we go along. 
not only did Newton give encouragement to his faith, but he also urged him not to cut himself off from public life. Wilberforce wrote, When I came away, I found my mind in a calm, tranquil state, more humbled and looking more devoutly up to God. Newton wrote to William, It is hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of his church and for the good of the nation. Uh, The battles of uncertainty continued in Wilberforce's life until the spring, and on Easter Sunday in 1786, he took to the fields to pray and to give thanks. He said it's like awakening from a dream. His new life brought a complete change in, in regimen. When Parliament was not in session, his daily routine included nine to ten hours of study. The, the Bible became his best book, best love book, and, and he was setting out to recover a lot of lost ground uh, due to his laziness in college. I hate it when people talk about laziness in college. That wasn't us, was it, Art? Laziness in college? You were hitting it hard, weren't you? You have anybody to prove that? (laughs) No. All right. Well, this new passion in his life set him on a path which he said, quote, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners uh, or morals. At that time, the slave trade was was massive. Uh, British ships dominated the slave trade. Uh, supplying French, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, and and British colonies. They say in peak years, there were 40,000 enslaved men, women, and and children across the Atlantic in, as you know, horrific conditions. Um, There's one estimate I saw that uh, uh, somewhere around 11 million Africans were transported into slavery, and 1.4 million of them died en route. Horrible situation. Uh, After Christmas in 1787, he gave notice, Wilberforce gave notice, that early in the new session, he would bring a motion of the abolition of slavery. It would be 20 years before this effort could carry the House of Commons and the House of Lords. The more he studied the atrocities that took place, uh, the more he was resolved to end the slave trade. Even though it was a long road, Wilberforce never wavered uh, in his effort. In 1796, he wrote, The grand object of my parliamentary existence is the abolition of slave trade. Before this great cause, all others dwindle in my eyes. With the backing of William Pitt, uh, who's now the prime minister, Wilberforce became leader of the Society of the Abolition of Slavery. Uh, This society campaigned for almost 20 years uh, to bring an end to uh, British involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. The abolition movement and campaign made a a lot of enemies for him, Um, especially among the rich. They they were making just absolutely huge profits on the slave trade. In 1783, the Triangular Route that took British goods to Africa, the slaves to the West Indies and America. Um, 
and then, then it brought sugar, tobacco, cotton, and stuff to Britain, so it went that way. Uh, it, it represented 80% of Great Britain's foreign income. So that's what he's up against to get this, to get this shut down. Um, he moved from Hull in 1792 to a place called Clapham. I think that's how it's pronounced, C-L-A-P-H-A-M, uh, to be closer to his work. And within that community, he found friends who shared his interest in religion and politics. Uh, they became known as the Clapham sect, and they actively supported the anti-slavery anti uh, abolitionists. While there, with the Clapham sect and living there, that's when he wrote his book, which is called A Practical View of Christianity. There and under the influence of Thomas Clarkson and others, he became completely absorbed in the issue of slavery. Later, he wrote, So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would, I from this, this time determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. So early on, he was actually optimistic that this was going to be pretty easy. Uh, he had no doubt that he had quick chances for success. Uh, in 1789, he and Clarkson together had 12 resolutions introduced, and they were all shot down due to mostly minor points of, of order or law or le some legal points. Um, the pathway to abolition was clearly blocked by uh, parliamentary filibustering, uh, entrenched bigotry, international politics, which obviously that was involved, slave unrest, his personal sickness, and political fear. Other bills introduced, and get this, he introduced bills in 1791, 92, 93, 97, Opponents spoke of the damnable doctrine of Wilberforce and his hypocritical allies. Uh, the opposition became fierce. One friend feared that one day he would read about Wilberforce's being, quote, carbonated, that is broiled, by Indian planters, barbecued by African merchants, and eaten by Guinea captains. The opposition raged, as we've said, for 20 years uh, because of those financial benefits. His life was threatened. He lost a good number of friends. Uh, he had huge political pressure, especially from the international problem that, that uh, Britain was, uh, England was going to experience with uh, uh, the U.S. lining there. Um, following 20 years of almost incessant work at 4 a.m., on February 24th in 1807, the House voted, listen to this, 283 to 16 uh, for abolition of slavery. So the, the road to that was over. It says, uh, a quoting from the book, Suddenly, above the roar, hear, hear, and quite out of order, three hurrahs echoed and echoed while he sat, 
head bowed, tears streaming down his face. Wilberforce attributed the victory to the immediate interposition of providence. But the battle was not over. This step was only the abolition law, as difficult as it was, was only about the slave trade, not slavery itself. So we had slave trade stopped by that law, but slavery itself could continue on. So this battle carried on till 1833 when Wilberforce was very old. We don't want to talk about old today, do we, Bobby? Not today, okay. Was very old and, and fragile, unlike Bobby. Um, three months before his death, he was persuaded to appear in public uh, once again and propose a last petition against slavery. No matter his personal condition, Wilberforce uh, could not be silent And uh, when the slaves required his help. Three days before his death, on July 26, 1833, Parliament voted to outlaw slavery. Um, took a few days working out details of the legislation. On the very day slavery was abolished is the day he died and went to the Lord. So that's slavery for Wilberforce. One would think with all that going on, um, he was just a one-issue guy. That's what he did. It's not so. Uh, he had a, a, a wide uh, diversity of, of benevolent causes, uh, which makes his work against slavery even more remarkable. He was involved in 69 different initiatives. Some of those... Uh, British Foreign Bible Society, Church Missionary Society, Society for Manufacturing Poor, the Manufacturing Poor, Society for the Better Observance of Sunday, Education Reform, Prison Reform, Child Labor Reform, and the Royal Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And that's just a few, few of what he was involved in. So Piper says, most of us make the multiplicity of demands an excuse for not giving ourselves to any one great cause over a long haul, and that's not the way it was with Wilberforce. Uh, the diversity of these causes points to Wilberforce's belief that one must deal with the root of all these ills in order to have any lasting influence for good. Thus, he wrote his book, A Practical View of Christianity. I'll pause there. I've been going through a lot of the things that he did, and we're, now we're going to move into his guiding theology. Questions, comments? I realized as I was speaking, a true historian walked in the room, which scares me to death. And, uh, isn't that your major, kind of? It isn't? I thought you were a church history person. Oh, that's not major. Okay. Well, I'm sure you're far enough along to put, put anything I say uh, to shame, so... Glad you're here. Good to see you. Yeah, secularism is secularism uh, kind of has to do that, doesn't it? I mean, it has to push down things that uh, probably are the real cause. Anything else? I went over this lesson first time. It took me two and a half hours. So, uh, but. No problem. Ryan said his sermon's short, so we can go as long as we want. Uh, so I better move along. So what made this guy tick uh, was a profound biblical allegiance 
uh, to what he called the peculiar doctrines of Christianity. Uh, quote, these doctrines give rise in turn to true affections for spiritual things, then break the power of pride and greed and fear and lead to transformed morals. No Christian can endure in battling unrighteousness unless his heart is aflame with the new spiritual affections or passions. Another quote, mere knowledge is confessedly too weak. The affections alone remain to supply the deficiency. One more quote, if a principle of true religion, the spirit-given new affections, should gain ground, there is no estimating the effects on public morals and the consequent influence on our public welfare. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we would call revival maybe? Uh, that's what changes uh, things. He believed that nominal Christians had abandoned these doctrines in favor of a system of ethics and thus lost the power of ethical life. Uh, pragmatism would ruin the very thing that it sought. Uh, Wilberforce believed that the majority of Christians estimated the guilt of an action in how the action was injurious to society rather than the action's offensiveness to God. In other words, sins, sin hurts people, so don't do it. Uh, the supremacy of God's glory in all things is the grand governing maxim in all of life. The good of society, the good of society must not be the primary good. So we see that today a lot. That's when should something be illegal if it doesn't hurt anybody else? If it's good for society, then it's good. That's how we measure things. We're pretty much awash in that kind of philosophy, not so for him. Uh, he held to the gigantic truths of the gospel. Piper says the main burden of Wilberforce's book, A Practical View of, Christ of Christianity, is to show that true Christianity, which consists in these new indomitable spiritually affections for Christ is rooted in the great doctrines of the Bible about sin and Christ and faith. Piper again says, it is a fable habit so common in his day and ours to consider Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines. Specifically, it is the achievement of God through the death of Christ that is at the center of these gigantic truths leading to personal and political reformation of morals. Wilberforce said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Well, Piper says these distinguishing doctrines, human depravity, divine judgment, substitutionary work of Christ on the cross, justification of faith, uh, by faith alone, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and the practical necessity of the fruit in a devoted life to good deeds. Those are the distinguishing doctrines that drove Wilberforce, should drive us too. What lessons did we learn from him? There's a bunch. So obviously we have 30 minutes left. I think we'll make it, but yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Oh, that, that'd be true. Yeah, yeah, Ser service of God. And we'll see in, in his life here that 
the, the, the change that comes about because of what Christ does, what God does in us, is what changes our life, and it changes our life in all respects. So we'll see some of those things here. Anybody else have a comment? Yeah. Yeah, it really is something. I mean, you took a guy that basically a par- party animal, and, and God changed him. And, uh, you know, it shouldn't, we shouldn't walk away thinking he's the only guy that did this. There was a, there was a group of people, and some would attribute other, others with more of an influence than Wilberforce. I, I have no idea. There's no question he was, he was used, uh, used by God in a very specific point in history. History changed right there uh, when, that, when slavery was abolished. Okay, some of the things that we can learn from him, we haven't talked about some of these very much, well, quite a few of them actually. Uh, one is he looked at, at possessions as being highly dangerous. Uh, he, he lived in sim- tried to live in simplicity and generosity. That wasn't his bringing up. Simplicity wasn't his, the way he was brought up, but he, he changed to that. Simplicity and generosity were a mark of his life. At one point a bit later in life, he, he said he should be able to give at least one quarter of his income to the poor. He wrote that riches were, considering them as in themselves acceptable, but from the infirmity of our nature as highly dangerous possessions. We are to value them chiefly as a means of honoring our heavenly benefactor and lessening the misery of mankind. For him, everything in politics... Uh, was for the alleviation of misery and the spread of happiness. Uh, he was not just a, a thinker. He was a great doer. He lacked time for half the good works that came to his mind. He said, no man has the right uh, to be idle. He lived to do good. He let his light shine before men. However, he was also tormented we all have those things in our lives where he was tormented from his, his wasted youth. He could apparently never forget how much time he had wasted in the early days of, of his life. Uh, he was also tormented during his Christian life with this, just where he should go. You remember the meeting with Newton, how he was, he was having trouble there. And uh, uh, even his friend William Pitt tried to talk him out of becoming evangelical because it would render his talents useless. Uh, to both himself and mankind. So there's a lot of stretching going on with him, and he was, he was a bit tormented in that. He carried on a wide variety of relationships uh, and with a clear purpose of leading others to the faith. These relationships included people in parliament, friends, and even inmates in prison. His zeal for the gospel extended well beyond just those relationships uh, Uh, Wilberforce wrote, Next to the slave trade, I have long thought our making no effort to introduce the blessings of religious and moral improvement among our subjects in the East, the greatest among national crimes. So apparently it was illegal for them to evangelize in like India uh, during that time. And so they worked to get that. And in 1813, he helped get that changed where they could evangelize there. When he did that in 1813, brought that speech, uh, Lord Erskine said that that speech deserves a place in the library of every man of letters, even if he were an atheist. Um, 
the breadth of his heart and the diversity of his action beckons us all the more to ponder the source of his constancy. Uh, he demonstrated incredible perseverance for the cause of justice. He's known as a man who simply would not give up. Uh, his adversaries complained Wilberforce jumped up whenever they knocked him down. It was said it is necessary to watch him as he is blessed with a very sufficient quantity of that enthusiastic spirit which is so far from yielding that it grows more vigorous from blows. I think of the Rocky movies. When he was blocking punches with his face, that's when he got fired up. And apparently that's kind of how Wilberforce was. The more they knocked him down, the more determined he got. Uh, uh, let's see. Two years later, Wilberforce wrote, I daily become more sensible that my work must be affected by constant and regular exertions rather than by sudden and violent ones. So he was a marathon guy, not a sprint guy. Uh, he prayed that he would not become weary in well-doing. And, of course, God answered that prayer. At the time that he was doing all this, as we mentioned, it was unthinkable to Parliament that uh, Britain could prosper without the slave trade. Uh, international pro politics pressured uh, uh, this position. Uh, the argument went, power and wealth will be transmitted to other nations and Britain would be weakened. We hear that kind of argument today. He continued on. At age 47, he had led the first victory over slave trade, and one person said this victory had brought him personal and moral authority with public and in Parliament above any living man. So he carried this on, and people respected him, and he had that, uh, had that respect. But even the best and the brightest will be maligned. He learned uh, uh, that lesson, and he took a controversial position in 1820 in regard to Queen Caroline's marital unfaithfulness, and he experienced dramatic public outrage. He learned a lesson that popularity is not what it's about. And, uh, oh, what a comfort, he said, oh, what a comfort it is to have to fly for refuge to a God of unchangeable truth and love. The severest of his criticism came in 1823 when he was accused by a guy named Corbett of pretending to care for the slaves from Africa but cared nothing about the wage slaves. So there was a big class difference and, there was, and he was accused of not caring, which he cared a lot about. Uh, he also experienced pain in his family. Uh, his, his wife, uh, Barbara, was not like him at all. He was always cheerful. She was always depressed, or frequently depressed and pessimistic. She kind of worried herself uh, all the time. His oldest son left the faith. Uh, Wilberforce actually cut him off from the family, caused, caused him great grief. His daughter died in 1821 from tuberculosis, and uh, all these blows really hit him hard, and his health was affected. He, he at that particular time, developed gout, Wilberforce labored under hard uh, physical conditions. Uh, his eyesight was, was bad and it got, got worse. I can scarce, one time he quoted, I can scarcely see how to direct my pen. He would hardly look into a mirror because he couldn't see the image that was there, uh, which led him 
often to be not dressed very well. Uh, in, in later years, he couldn't see to read or write. Um, the vision problem was uh, uh, exacerbated by a slow buildup of morphine in his body. Um, doctors had prescribed opium pills to, to control the debility of ulcerative colitis, which is a very painful condition. Uh, as the years went on, he became more and more untidy and absent-minded. I really don't like talking about absent-minded. Uh, but anyway, he did. Uh, it is proof of the strength of his, his will that he achieved so much. In, in 1814, on top of his eye problem, colon problem, and emerging lung problem, Wilberforce developed curvature of the spine. Uh, this gradually contorted his body, and uh, he actually wore a brace under his clothes that not many people even knew he had. Um, we should note that he didn't fight this battle alone. He had a group of friends. Uh, I mentioned the Clapham sect. Uh, that was centered around church, and uh, they lived in the suburb of London. Wilberforce had, had several close friends, including a guy named Henry Thornton. Uh, he didn't set out to to develop all of this, it just came about. He had these, these comrades, but, but it happened and it was a great benefit to him. Uh, Wilberforce was a man who changed his times, but he really didn't do it alone. A deeper root of his endurance uh, than, uh, than camaraderie was his childlike, child-loving, self-forgetting joy in Christ. Uh, the testimonies of his demeanor are many. Uh, quote, by the tones of his voice and expression of his countenance, he showed that joy was the prevailing feature of his mind. Joy springing from the entireness of trust in the Savior's merits and from the love to God and man. He was also a, a cheerful Christian. His harp appeared to always be in tune. Just being himself amused and interested in everything, uh, whatever he said became amusing and interesting. Uh, his presence was fatal to dullness, they say, as it was to immorality. Uh, his mirth was as irresistible as the first laughter of childhood. Wilberforce's joy was indomitable, and therefore he was compelling, a compelling Christian and politician all his life. Though his, you'll like this, though his faith and doctrines seemed to be Calvinistic, he did not like the term because Calvinists had the reputation of being joyless. Wilberforce believed that joy wasn't optional. Uh, the scriptures contain abundant proof that joy is our bounden duty, he says. Uh, for Wilberforce, joy was both a means of survival and perseverance on the one hand, and a, and a deep act of submission, obedience, and worship on the other hand. Joy in Christ is the only way to flourish fruitfully through decades of temporary defeat. It's important that we clarify uh, Wilberforce's pursuit of joy with the word seeking. He was not always in the state of joy as we would expect. Uh, he in 1788, when he was emerging from a serious bout with colitis, uh, he seemed to enter in a dark night of the soul. He fought for the joy of the Lord. Uh, it can be seen in his notebooks and his prayers. 
Um, less devastating than his dark nights, this is Piper, were his recurring disappointments with his own failures. From his diary, quote, Alas, alas, how miserable wretch am I, how infatuated, how dead to every better feeling, yet, yet, yet may I, O oh God, be enabled to repent and turn to Thee with my whole heart. Thou hast been above all measure gracious and forgiving. There was in Wilberforce a holy dread of losing his uh, reformed taste for spiritual reality. This dread gave rise to earnest prayers, resolute self-denial, and rigorous absence from anything that would rob him of greater joys. To Wilberforce, the nominal Christian knows not the sweetness of the delights with which true Christianity repays those trifling sacrifices. He had learned the secret of the good fight. His joy reasserted itself. And after every tumult in society and in the soul, um, he knew about the good fight. He spoke about the cultivation of desire. The roots were in doctrine, and the link between life and doctrine was prayer. He could not conceal from others uh, his commitment to personal prayer and private devotion. Very often persons of the very highest distinction were at his breakfast table, but he never made his appearance till he had concluded his own meditations. Reading his Bible in prayer. Piper said, we're going to get done early. Piper said, it is stunning that a politician with no formal theological training, rightly considered the workings of God in justification and sanctification to be utterly essential for Christian living. Again, Piper, many public people say that changing society requires changing people, but few understand Wilberforce did exactly how that comes about. Few understand, as Wilberforce did, exactly how that comes about the right grasp of justification and its relationship to sanctification. He viewed that most Christians of his day were nominal Christians. The nominal pursued morality without first relying utterly on the free gift of justification and the reconciliation by faith in Christ alone. So, I've gone over some of the things we could learn from him. Any comments on what you, you heard about Wilberforce's life? Okay. <laughs> Prayer. Mm -hmm. what, what I was saying here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I got from, from reading this, and, and of course, Piper's taken a slant on, on the life of, of pointing to his reliance on the doctrine. And I, I suspect if you read a larger book of, of Wilberforce, there wouldn't be that much emphasis on it. I think that's what Piper, Piper took that, that direction particularly. But you, 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 yes, sir? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer to that uh, at all. Back yep and no.
Okay, but uh, was there a legalism in there? Acute. Exactly. Yeah, no, I want to make a distinction here. I, mean, I went through a lot of stuff fast, and so and my brain gets confused too. That that deal about him being uh, his, his mother not wanting him to be exposed to Methodism is is one thing, and then accused of of being evangelical. I'm not sure the Methodism and the evangelical are tied there. It's two different pieces of his life. Uh, I took some of that to be. Anytime somebody's trying to take a stand on things, they're going to be accused of something. And and I think what Piper was trying to, they're going to be accused of being a legalist or a something. Um, Piper's making the point, this guy's, the guy's, this Wilberforce's source of his joy and his his uh, perseverance was, was in Christ and in, in the great doctrines. Right. Yeah, we, we're 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 to obey, even when we may not feel like it. But God will bring us that. You know, that's what he was he was saying. I can't remember the quote now, but he was saying it comes back to that. God brings that to us as we we come before Him and repenting and uh, so forth. Yep. Yeah, I think I'd make I'd say that. It's probably a bit unfair to her um, <clears throat> because Piper's condensing this thing way down to a short biography, and then I took it way more and just pointing out that. And I'm sure there's a lot more to her than, than that. But the point is he was very outgoing. I mean, he, he apparently at times he could really sing, and so he would just get up on a table and sing, and people would just flock around there. And so he, when he was a party animal, he was the guy. You know, he was the he was the life of the party, and I think that never ceased in the sense of not in parties, but he was always a person that attracted others to himself, and and a and a great orator, and and apparently she was nothing like him. Uh, of course, they dated for eight days. He should have figured that out. <laughs> yeah, you do. They sure do. Yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't look for a full book on him, uh, so I, no, I don't really, really know one. This this one's a good starter uh, for that. Art mentioned that uh, Chuck Colson wrote a book. Ooh, it'd be in the '80s, wouldn't it? Uh, called Kingdoms in Conflict, and and Wilberforce was a chapter in there. I remember. I don't remember much I read at all. I can't remember that I read a book usually. But I do remember I read that book, and I do remember that's the first time I ran across Wilberforce, and I was astounded at, at uh, what he did. But that's not answering your question. But anybody know a, a good book uh, recommend on Wilberforce? Okay. Thank you. Anybody else? It's on Amazon? Or can you get them in Audible? <laughs> oh, really? Okay. That'd be... Yeah. Oh, one star? I'm not going to get a one star. Oh, one rating. Oh, and what was that? Five? Five 
Okay. All right, let's let's wrap up. We we see him and looking at his life and what we learn from it is he's he was generous. He he was a, a doer, and not just a man of the books, but he was a man of the books. He, he evangelist, strong endurance. He overcame obstacles. He was persecuted yet joyful. Uh, he loved God and he held to to pure doctrine. So I just kind of looking to see. You may want to get your Bibles. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And I, this is a prayer of Paul. And I, I thought as I, I read this a time or two, I thought, man, you know, Paul's praying this obviously for the Colossian church, and you could certainly say he's praying it for all churches in one way. But you see, look, look in here at these words and the answers to the, look at, did, did he answer, I mean, you know, Wilberforce exhibited so many things that Paul is urging here and praying for. So look at some of these words, and you'll see the word endurance in here, but just, just think of it in, in that frame of mind as we read Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, and all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I, I read that and I thought, man, that prayer was answered to a great extent in Wilberforce's life. He exhibited so many things there that uh, Paul prayed for. And as we think on all that Wilberforce gave and, and endured, especially at this time of year, we need to remember that pales in comparison to what our Lord went through suffered on our, for our sake and, and went to, to his death uh, for us and, of course, rose again for us as well. So we, we look at these biographies. I recommend you look at these, and they're great. They're inspirational. Wilberforce is inspirational to me, not as inspirational as our Lord, and uh, let's keep that in focus. I'll close with Piper's comments. Piper asks, is it not remarkable that one of the greatest politicians of Britain and one of the most persevering public warriors for social justice should elevate doctrine so highly? From the beginning of his life as a Christian in 1785 to his death in 1833, Wilberforce lived off the great doctrines of the gospel. Thus it could rightly be said about him, when all around him is dark and stormy, he can lift up an eye to heaven, radiant with hope and glistening with gratitude. And Piper's closing paragraph, Therefore, in all our zeal today for racial harmony or the sanctity of human life or the building of a moral culture, let us not forget these lessons. Never minimize the central place of God-centered, Christ-exalting doctrine. 
labor to be indomitably joyful in all that God is for us in Christ by trusting His great finished work and never be idle in doing good that men may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. You're dismissed.